Uh, I was thinking just the other day that uh, it's been just about a year that Michelle and I have been here at The Rock. And uh, we feel very much at home. This is our, our spiritual family, our faith community. And you know, when you, when you come to a new church, you start to form opinions of what that church is like. You ask questions, you, you look around, and uh, you, you wonder, is it a friendly church when you start coming? Um, is the worship uplifting? Is there good coffee? Does the pastor preach too long? But one of the things that I have come to really appreciate about The Rock is our time of pastoral prayer, the time when we gather as a community. Um, the focus, the effort put forth by our elders in leading us each week, I think is an important part of the function of a local expression of the church universal, of all believers. And I think that there are value in that time of corporate pastoral prayer, and there's a necessity for us as a local body of believers, that each week we come before, not just to sing, not just to hear the word, but to come together as a body before the Lord in worship. And so I want to look this morning at an Old Testament pastoral prayer and look at the value and the necessity of corporate prayer for us today. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and we're going to be reading from verses 10 to 22. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verses 10 through 22. And if you're able, please stand with me as we read together God's word. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure and uprightness, in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly, bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, 
and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that you would guide us, direct us through your word, that we might live it out each day in the communities and in the places where you have called us, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Fifty years ago, I hate saying that because it makes me sound so old, but I can. Fifty years ago, on July 20th, 1969, my parents woke up, my younger brother and I, to watch a very grainy black and white image of some guy walking down a ladder and in a garbled voice utter these now famous words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We, along with an estimated 600 million people, watched astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. It was still, to this day, considered the greatest technological advance of mankind. Think about it using raw elements from the earth. We developed steel, aluminum, Teflon, tinfoil, Velcro, and a host of other products that would go into building a craft that would launch a man from one planet to another and bring him back safely. From the oozy fossilized remains of animal and plant matter, crude oil pumped deep from below the earth's surface, we developed oils and lubricants and rocket fuel that would take this craft and launch it 384,400 kilometers from the Earth and land on another planet. We learned and we understood advanced mathematics, concepts of physics and how our solar system worked. And with mathematical calculations done by hand on a slide rule, now I'm really aging myself if you know what a slide rule is, with calculations mostly done by women, black women, in an age of segregation and with computers less powerful than your average cell phone today, we did it. We put a man on the moon and we brought him back safely. It was considered and still is to this day the greatest technological advancement of mankind as a, as a human race. The mastery, the intelligence, the superior intellect of the human race above all other created things accomplish this. At least that's the opinion of some. What happened next is not widely publicized. What happened right after they landed on the surface of the moon before that famous walk down the ladder? Astronaut Buzz Aldrin celebrated communion there in the lunar module. The Lord's Supper with a special communion kit that his church had prepared for him for this incredible journey. Listen to what Buzz said later. In the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained the bread and the wine. I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given to me. And in the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up the side of the cup. Then I read the scripture. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I had intended to read my communion passage back to the earth, but at the last minute, NASA had requested that I not do this. 
NASA was already embroiled in a legal battle with Madeleine Murray O'Hare, the celebrated opponent of religion, over the Apollo 8 crew reading from Genesis while orbiting the moon at Christmas. I agreed reluctantly, and there on the moon's surface, I ate the tiny host and swallowed the wine. It was interesting for me to think the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were the communion elements. The words of Buzz Aldrin and this simple exercise of celebrating the Lord's Supper bring some perspective to this idea of our human superiority, doesn't it? Our technological prowess in comparison to the God of creation, the God of the universe. I read a quote recently. I should have written it down. I read these things and I think of them later and I don't really remember where I found it, but it went something like this. There's nothing more intoxicating than being drunk on one's own glory. And too often that describes our society today, doesn't it? So what does the moon landing have to do with corporate prayer? I think both teach us something about God and something about ourselves. And to fully understand David's prayer here in 1 Chronicles 29, we need to get some background information. Look at chapter 28. I want to look at a couple of verses to just help us understand and prepare us to understand what David's intent was in his pastoral, his corporate prayer here in chapter 29. Chapter 28, verse 3 tells us where David tells the people that he cannot build the temple because he's been a man of war. He has shed blood. It wasn't to be his task. He gathered the material. He prepared the material. He had the plans from God, but his job was not to build the temple. Verse 5 tells us that it was God who chose Solomon to be the next king. It wasn't David's choice. It was God's choice. Verses 6 and 7 tells us that David gives this promise that both the earthly kingdom that he is associated with, the kingdom of David, is temporary, but there is an eternal kingdom that will continue. And twice, in verses 10 and verse 20, David tells Solomon to be strong and do it in reference to this task of building the temple. Ezra, who we believe to be the author of the book of Chronicles, focuses on the importance of the temple. It signified that the people were at rest. No longer were they wandering in the desert. The temple was going to be that permanent structure because the people were at rest. The tabernacle, that structure that Moses made, that tent in the wilderness, was no longer needed because the people weren't going to be traveling. They were settled in the land of promise. But there was still the need of a place to meet with God. There was still a time and a place to bring sacrifice and offerings and worship. And that was to be Solomon's task. The temple was not the place where God dwelt. God cannot be contained in a temple or a building or a structure. But it was really, as the name suggested, the tent of meeting, the place where the people gathered together to meet with God, to worship, to bring sacrifice. And that's what we do, is it not? We gather to bring sacrifice, we gather to bring worship, and we meet with God here. And it's representative of us as a body coming before our Heavenly Father. David had prepared much of the building materials, the plans, the tools, the elements, the gold, the silver, the copper, the bronze, the cedars from Lebanon, everything to build the temple. But his was not to be that task. And here he's preparing the people for what's going to come next. 
So in chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles, David, David gathers the people and he gives his charge to Solomon. And chapter 29 opens with the report of all the free will offerings for the building of the temple that the people had given and that David personally in verse 3 had given. And it reminds me of the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where Paul says, each one must give as he has decided or purposed in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we see in chapter 28, in the beginning of verse 29, that the people gave joyfully. All that they had, they gave joyfully. There was no holding back. And so in Chapter 29, verses 10 through 22, we see David's prayer, his pastoral prayer, his corporate prayer. And I think we see three distinct aspects of this prayer that demonstrate and model to us today the value and the necessity of corporate prayer when we come together. And the first is that corporate prayer focuses on the character of God. Listen again to verses 10 through 13. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. David begins his pastoral prayer by focusing on the nature and the character of God. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. For the first time in the Bible, we see God referred to as our Father in verse 10. It reminds me of when Jesus taught us to pray, in Matthew 6, he began this same way. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. He emphasizes this relational nature of God who is our heavenly Father. There's a lot of similarities here. David says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. And in the concluding part of the Lord's Prayer, as taught by Jesus, it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, as noted in some versions. And I wonder if Jesus had been thinking back to this passage, this prayer of David, that reflects the character and the nature of God in relational terms. Our Father. Not some distant God like the pagan nations around Israel, but a God who is relational, who wants a relationship with us. We were created to have relationship with him. Yet that relationship was broken because of sin, and only through Jesus can that relationship be restored. And it's interesting how the temple mirrors in reverse order what happened in the garden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve walked with God. They had fellowship in perfect unity and harmony without sin. Yet sin entered. They were expelled from the garden. And what did God do? He placed two cherubim and a flaming sword at the entrance. They couldn't get back in. But they brought sacrifice and they came and they worshipped. And how are we able to get back into a right relationship with God? It's because Jesus came. He died on the cross and he presented that perfect, ultimate sacrifice that allows us to be restored back to that relationship where we can walk with the Lord 
and have that fellowship. And David and the people rejoiced because they were willing to give, sacrificially give toward the building of the temple. And in verse 11, David highlights this specific character and attribute of God because he says, Yours, O Lord, these belong to and define who God is, for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above all. And in this verse, he talks about five specific attributes. Yours is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. He focuses this prayer first on the character of God, who God is. And in verse 12, he intentionally shifts that focus to a correct understanding that all he has, and thus all the people have, comes from God. It's not from ourselves. It's from God. He is the owner. He is the creator. He is the Lord. Look what he says. Both riches and honor come from you. God is the provider of all our material needs. You rule over all. It talks about God's sovereignty. In your hand are power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. The words you and your appear nine times in verses 10 through 12. The focus of this introduction part of David's prayer is on God. It was necessary as David was ending his life's work, as he called the people together, as he awaited for this new king and this new activity of building the temple, that he wants to begin by helping the people put their focus on something that was right, on God. And I think we see the same truth in the New Testament passages where Jesus teaches us on corporate prayer. It's interesting that the Lord's Prayer is not an individual prayer. If you look and read through it, you see words, our, we, us. It's a corporate prayer. Our Father in heaven, God is our Father. Hallowed be your name, blessed be the Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is the one in control. Give us, plural, us as a community, give us this day our daily bread. Everything we have comes from God. He is our provider. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. God gave us this example of mercy. He has forgiven us. Therefore, we should go and forgive others. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. Keep us focused on your word and on your way. And corporate prayer that is directed to God when we as a community gather must first help us focus on who God is. It's interesting. We often use the little acronym ACTS. A lot of new believers will use this as a model for prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Starts with God. Adoration. Focus on who God is. Focus on who his character is. What his relationship is with us. And I think there's something special when we gather as a community and as together we say in one voice through our pastoral prayer, our God, our Father, and we recognize who he is, and we come before him in worship. He has redeemed us from the slave market of sin. He has provided that which was necessary for us to enter back into his presence and have fellowship and communion with him. Psalm 111.9 says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. 
Mark 10, 45 says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the relational nature and character of God, that he created us for a relationship with him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. But that relationship was broken because of sin. And it was God who took the initiative. We couldn't. There was nothing we could have done in our own strength to restore that relationship. With all of our intellect, with all of our intelligence, we could put a man on the moon and bring him back safely, but we cannot, we cannot restore that relationship back to God without Jesus. We're, we have an inability to do that. And so David begins this prayer by focusing on the character of God. Let's get it right, people. Let's remember that all that we have here in the land, as we begin this new time, as we begin with a new king and a new task to build the temple, let's remember that it is God who brought us here. And we say the same thing today. It is God who has provided everything we have, even that which we willingly give back to him is his. Corporate prayer first focuses on the character and the nature of God. Secondly, though, corporate prayer reveals who we really are. Look at verses 14 through 18. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. David's pastoral prayer focused first on the character of God and then moves very quickly here in verses 14 to 18 to reveal who we really are. It gives us an understanding of who we are just in case we're still somewhat confused. The great reformer John Calvin says, men are notably more in danger from prosperity than adversity. Be careful when we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we should. More important, more intelligent, for soon we shall begin to forget that we have a need of God. And there was a real danger here in Israel of that very thing happening. The promised land had been conquered and possessed. Israel's enemies had been subdued. An attempted coup in the kingdom had been averted. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 1, another one of David's sons, Adonijah, had started a rebellion, and that was quelled. There was peace in the land. There was prosperity. There was provision for the temple, the plants, the materials, the gold, the silver, all that was necessary. There was an heir, there was a new king, there was Solomon, and there was a temptation to allow this prosperity and the ease of life to infiltrate into the minds of the people and begin to have an overinflated view of themselves and thus forget that it was God who brought them here and thus forget that it was God who provided everything they had. 
And so David quickly shatters this thought, this danger, with this idea that corporate prayer reveals who we are. He says in verse 14, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? And he answers his own question in the second part of the verse. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. David acknowledges their human weakness. Compared to the strength of God, all they had belonged to him. If we can take raw elements from the earth, iron ore, other types of rock, and create a rocket, did we really create? We just took elements that were already there. God is the creator. Kind of puts it back in perspective, doesn't it? Even as they looked on the land, which they stood, the land that they conquered, that they possessed. In verse 15, he says, We are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. David recognizes and acknowledges the reality and the shortness of life. A couple that we knew back from our, our former church in our former area, Newmarket area, died last week. Um, he was 56. He's my age. I'm thinking, I'm getting to the age where people my age are starting to die. Life is short. Life is but a shadow. David says, there is no abiding. We don't remain here. This is a temporary life, but eternity is forever. And so the question has to be asked. So what are we investing our life in? Is it riches and great wealth and knowledge and titles and positions? Or is it something more? Is it ensuring that the next generation, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, hear the gospel and have that opportunity to come to know Jesus personally? David recognized our human weakness, our total dependence upon God for all things. Even that which we now have, even that which we're able to give, he recognized that in our own strength, we did nothing. It's all from God. Contrast this weakness, this thought of we don't abide to the words of Jesus in John 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In John chapter 17, sorry, John chapter 15, we have this wonderful teaching of the vine and the branches where Jesus says, abide in me. Eleven times he uses this term, abide. He invites us to abide in him, that we might bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, spiritual fruit that will remain. And it's interesting that David recognized our human inability. There is no abiding. And in Jesus we see our spiritual ability. Abide in me eternally. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is and what he did on the cross. In verse 16, David acknowledges again that the people have given for the building of the temple, that all they gave came from God initially. It was his. They were merely stewards of the resources. And in verses 17 and 18, David shifts his prayer, and it reveals who we really are when we see his heart, both as he acknowledges that it is God who tests or proves the motives of the heart, and God who responds. I think corporate prayer reveals who we really are. We're weak, needy people. It strips away all the trappings of our own 
intelligence, our, our education, our successes, what we've accomplished in life, what we've gathered, the toys we've collected. In, in our corporate prayer, we come before him as who we are, people in need of his grace, people in need of his love. It's that transparency of heart that makes corporate prayer a necessary part of our weekly gathering. David comes before the Lord in this prayer, not as some kind of high priest or exalted king, but as a son before his father. He understands the relationship and he asks for strength for the people to keep God's purpose and God's thoughts in their heart and to direct their hearts, their motives and passions and desires toward him, their heavenly father, in verse 18. And shouldn't this be our prayer every day as a community of believers? That our hearts, first and foremost, would be driven toward God. That he would be the first thing we think about. And throughout the day, as we go through whatever he calls us to do in life, that our thoughts would be focused on him. That God would keep our hearts, our motives, and our desires focused on him. We live in a broken world of narcissism, of I self-identify, of I'm the center of the universe, as I'm the most important thing in the universe. And never before have we been in more danger of becoming legends in our own mind than we do today. And this prayer, this corporate prayer, this time when we as a local body come together, recognizes who we really are. And it allows us to respond then to the invitation, abide in me. It's one thing to recognize who you really are, but what do you do then when you realize that you have no hope? That it doesn't matter what my education is, it doesn't matter what I've accomplished in life, it doesn't matter what I've collected in terms of material possessions, if I don't have a right relationship with Jesus. That's the purpose and the necessity of corporate prayer. It brings us before God and allows us, as we focus on him, as we focus on who he is and his character and his nature, to understand who we are. Broken, sinful people in need of his grace that he freely offers to all. And right at the end of this passage where David is revealing who we are, verse 19 seems a little out of place here. Let me read it. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, performing all that he may build up the palace for which I have made provision. As I was studying through this passage, this verse doesn't really fit. It, it seems a bit of an anomaly in a prayer that's community focused, in a prayer that has all of the leaders of Israel gathered, the people giving willfully, joyfully, recognizing who they were in comparison to God. Praying specifically for your son seems a little out of place, maybe a little presumptuous, doesn't it? But I think that there's three reasons David prayed specifically for Solomon, his son, in the midst of this corporate pastoral prayer. First, very simply, it was the concern of a father toward the spiritual journey of his son. The Apostle John wrote in 3 John, verses 3 and 4, these words. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers and sisters, because the word is plural, 
came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. David knew that riches, peace, a secure kingdom, and all that this world had to offer were not enough to allow the kingdom to continue. Solomon, his son, would need to have a right relationship with God. That was his prayer. He knew who Solomon was. Yes, God had given him great wisdom, and God could give him great wealth, and God would give him great wealth, but if his heart wasn't attuned to God, none of that would matter. And isn't that what we pray for all of our children? That they would come to know Jesus personally and walk with him, regardless of what they do in life, regardless of the career path or the success in business that they attain. Second, I think David prayed for his son Solomon because it recognizes that Solomon was chosen by God to be king after his father David. We see this in chapter 28, verse 5. Leadership succession in God's economy doesn't always follow the firstborn son as we would think of kings and princes. Solomon was not David's firstborn son. God at times chooses those we would not choose. David was the youngest of all his brothers. And when the prophet Samuel examined all of his brothers in 1 Samuel 16, he didn't come out on top of the pile. But it was the Lord who chose David to be king in place of Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, but the Lord looks on the heart. David prayed specifically for Solomon here because it reiterates the truth that God had appointed and chosen Solomon to be king. And the people needed to follow his leadership. And David here is publicly acknowledging his kingship. Thirdly, Solomon's task was to build the temple. And that would require the help of all the people. Ministry, even leadership in ministry, is never a call to isolation. It's never a one-man show model. As God's people, we're part of the body. And as such, we all play a part. We all have gifts and abilities and talents. And what we bring to serve helps in body health. David prays for Solomon specifically because the task of building the temple would require the help of all the people, not just the leaders. And church, as we see it today, is never the ministry of just the pastor or the elders. It's the ministry of all of us. It's the very nature for the reason gifts were given in the first place. Gifts were never given for individual use. They were always given for corporate or body health. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, we have a partial list of gifts. It's not the full list of all spiritual gifts. It's just a couple. But the important part here is the reason for which the gifts were given. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why we have gifts. For building up of the body of Christ. That's why we've been given spiritual gifts. To build up one another. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and mature manhood. David prayed for Solomon because he recognized the great need Solomon would have to be a spiritual leader, first and foremost. To walk with God to obey what God commanded him to do. He recognized that all of the kingdom's riches and all of the peace and prosperity 
weren't going to help him if he didn't have that right relationship with God. He prayed for him specifically because he recognized he would need help. He had the help of all the people in this great task of building the temple. And as David continues on in this prayer, the third thing we see is that corporate prayer is a rehearsal for eternity. Let me read verses 20 to 22. Then David said to all the assembly, all of those were gathered together, the people, the leaders, bless the Lord your God and all the assembly, all the people, all the leaders gathered, bless the Lord, the God of their fathers and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day they offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. I think in these verses we see a little bit of what heaven is going to be like. And that's what corporate prayer is. It's a rehearsal for eternity. When we come together at this place, the Rock Community Church in Woodstock, Ontario, Canada, we come as part of a larger body and we're practicing for eternity. The Apostle John was given a sneak peek, a bit of a preview of what heaven was going to be like. And he wrote these words in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And those verses kind of reflect what David says in First Chronicles 29.11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, your exalted head above all. Corporate prayer, when we come together, when we gather, is a prelude. It's a little taste of what heaven will be like, glorifying and worshiping together as part of God's people. John goes on to say in Revelation 9, or sorry, Revelation 7, 9 to 12. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped him saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we echo those same words, don't we? We one day will sit around the throne for eternity, worshiping as a complete people of God, redeemed, washed in fellowship and communion with him, as Adam and Eve did when they walked with him in the garden and had fellowship with him. The Apostle John was given this vision, this glimpse, this preview of what heaven would be like when we would sit around and we would worship in his presence. In verse 20, David invites the people, bless the Lord your God. 
And the people respond. They participate. And they ate and they sacrificed and they fellowshiped and there was great joy. Some biblical scholars suggest that there's probably a bit of a time gap here at the end of David's prayer in verse 20 and the enormity of sacrifices that we see in verses 21 and 22. A thousand bulls, rams, and lambs most likely happened after David died as Solomon assumed the throne and continued this spiritual direction that David had set and prayed for. And verse 22 ends this passage with joy. They ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great joy and gladness. It wasn't drudgery. I'm not a singer. I'm about as unmusical as they come. But I am going to worship in eternity one day. Hopefully I'll be toward the back and not sing too loud. But we will be there. This is a rehearsal. That's the purpose when we gather, when we focus on who God is, his character. It reveals who we are. It's easy to compare ourselves to somebody who's less than us. Kids have this often. They'll come home with a report card and mom and dad will say, you got a, you got a C minus in math? What's going on? He'll say, well, yeah, I got a C minus, but, but, but Bobby over here got an F. I'm better than him. It's easy to compare ourselves to somebody who's less than. But when we compare ourselves to God, the creator of the universe, it reveals who we really are. Yes, the moon landing to this day is one of the greatest technological advances that man has ever accomplished. But in a right perspective, it pales in comparison to the God who created the universe. Isn't that an incredible thought? All of our intellect, all of our intelligence, all of our mathematical and physical knowledge of the universe pales in comparison to who God is. And David says, bless the people. Bless God. Worship God. Come before him. And this passage ends with great joy and gladness and the abundance of the sacrifice reflect the number of people there because all of the people ate of those sacrifices and were satisfied and full. And that's what worship is. It's satisfying. It fills us. So it is with our corporate worship today. It's a rehearsal for eternity. So why is corporate prayer, our pastoral prayer time, of value and necessity? It focuses on God's character. It reveals who we are. And it's a rehearsal for eternity. But let me give you one more practical application. Corporate prayer sets the pattern for us to follow in the home. We only meet as a congregation once a week on Sundays. What about Monday to Saturday? We still have this need to worship corporately as families. The importance of parents, especially dads, to lead your children and your family spiritually. But it also highlights the fact that we live in a broken world and we have broken families, and we have husbands and wives that don't know the Lord, and we have children who have rebelled or have walked away from their faith, who don't know the Lord. And I think the godly example of a worshiping mother or father has a great impact and able to influence that individual that's walked away. It also is a way for us to practice body care with one another, to meet intentionally, be it Bible study, be it over coffee, be it a walk around town, to encourage one another as part of the body. 
if you hurt your leg, the rest of your body feels the pain. You see Gord with a sling on, a little bit of a bike accident. I'm sure the rest of his body's feeling it, not just his elbow and shoulder. It's the same in our body, in our community. When one person's hurt, we all hurt. And I think that the pattern that we see in heaven that was reflected in the time of the temple, that is reflected in our corporate and our pastoral prayer today is also the pattern that we take into our homes, that we practice with one another. God has called us and he has given us unique opportunities to minister, to serve one another. And I think this time of corporate worship, of corporate pastoral prayer that we practice here is something of value. It's necessary. It helps focus us in a right direction. As we focus on the character and the nature of God, it reveals who we really are in comparison to him, our need of him and his provision for us. That's one of the great joys of the gospel, isn't it? Not just that we recognize that we're needy, sinful, fallen people, but that God has done something about it that we couldn't do. And as we gather and we worship together, it's a rehearsal for eternity, and it's a pattern we take and practice in our homes, in our community, with groups of friends. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are our great God, that there is none like you, that all that we have and all that we attain is from you and is yours, and we joyfully return a portion of that back to you each week. Thank you for the privilege to participate in corporate worship together led by our pastor and our elders, Lord, that we come before you as a family, as part of your family, recognizing who you are, acknowledging who we are, and rehearsing for eternity. And may we take that pattern with us to our homes, to our workplace, to encourage one another to build up the body in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.